0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Max Spence Business Podcast. Today i have a very special guest, uh, but before I jump into the show, uh, you know, if you guys like the content I'm putting out and the people I'm interviewing, uh, please, you know, like, subscribe, leave a like uh, and a comment. It helps out a lot with the podcast and also helps out with people that are coming on my show. So without further ado, uh, today's guest is uh, Scott Chompin. So Scott is actually the CEO and founder of the Urban Specific Pacific uh, group of companies, so they pretty much specialize in urban infill development, and uh, they're a real estate they're a real estate firm, and so they do a lot of different stuff um, as well within the real estate field. But it's great having you on the it's great having you on the show, Scott. Yeah, great to be here, Max. Appreciate it. Awesome, awesome. So why don't we jump right into this? Uh, I know we were talking previously before the show started a <laughs> little bit about your uh, family's origin uh, story from you know coming from the UK to. To the, and then emigrating to Canada and the U.S. Why don't we dive into that? Because that sounds like a very interesting story.
1: Yeah. Well, you you were you were telling me you're based in Canada, so I was sharing the story, which is my grandfather and and his family, my dad and and his three siblings immigrated from the U.K. in 1947. And they moved to Toronto, as as was typical in that day. You know, UK citizens can go to Canada with you know with like not much effort from a visa standpoint. And then the the story I'm told was in the middle of winter in Toronto, uh, my grandfather by himself rode the train west to Vancouver, and then picked up the train south from Vancouver. And the story, at least as it's been told to me, ended up at the end of the line, quote unquote, in Long Beach, where we're based now and it was like middle of winter but it being southern california it was like sun was shining it was you know 80 degrees and the palm trees were blowing in the breeze and you know sort of like hey look like this is it <laughs> we're going here my mother and four kids you know basically moved from toronto down to long beach so that puts us in long beach about 1948 49 and then our family's been here uh ever since then so so i would be third generation then and my kids are fourth generation in in California and in uh, Long Beach specifically. Wow,
0: wow, that that that, that that's an incredible story. That, that that's amazing. That I, I love that. That like it's 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 sort of like a movie story, <laughs> you know, ca- traveling across. The- well, you know,
1: it's it's interesting that you say that because like I I think about it. I mean, I don't know about you, but like yeah, and you know, I didn't give these details, but you know, my grandfather who was you know the you know the sole breadwinner of the family. I mean moving from the UK to Toronto with no like networks no you know prospects that you might say in the day and then even more radically moving to the US um really arriving in Long Beach and you know had had a career background from when it was in UK but really spent numerous years and actually was a firefighter in the London Fire Brigade during World War II and so it didn't necessarily have a career, like a standard career in World War II would have disrupted that. But the thing I always think about is, holy cow, like moving your family, your wife and four kids, you know, across, you know, overseas. And, you know, he 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 figured out, you know, he was the head, head waiter at a, you know, really pretty high end restaurant in the time in downtown Long Beach. And then ultimately... Uh, Found his way into uh, being in in sales uh, in the automobile industry, you know, car sales, and actually spent probably 20 or 30 years, you know, being very successful doing that. But I don't know. I don't know if I've had the guts to do that. That's a big deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. A hundred percent. And back then it wasn't like, there's not like there's like uh, Facebook or Instagram or text message. Right. Dude. It's message.
1: like you, you, you had to go like knock on doors and you know, call people on the phone. Right.
0: <laughs> took, some, <laughs>
1: yeah. took some cojones back then to do that, I would say.
0: <laughs> Absolutely crazy. Uh, so I actually, uh, I, I was looking a little bit into your backstory and it seems like, uh, your family has been like, uh, real estate developers for, uh, I think 40 or 60 years now. And, uh, in well, uh, yeah. in, in California. So what what's sort of the history behind that? Like who, who first got into uh, the real estate development side?
1: Uh, sorry. So yeah, background and then say the last part of the question. Sorry, I missed that part.
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I think the internet is a little bit way like wishy washy here, but um, gotcha. Yeah. So sorry about that. But uh, pretty much yeah. just, oh, good. Uh, so like, what, what, how, how did you actually like, how did your family get into real estate?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my so my my uncle Mike Chopin and my dad Carrie Chopin were, were both in the business, but but Michael was, you know, uh, you know, th- the the son of an immigrant family, right? Uh, born in UK, immigrated over here. Uh, was probably you know twelve or thirteen by the time that we came to the or they came to the US. And I think just the classic story of of growing up as as the kids of of immigrants, right? Like you, you just you, you you hustle, is the way I put it. And so he basically was this sort of this person that was built to to be entrepreneurial, and went into real estate in 1960s, as, as you alluded to. Um, and then built, you know, really one of the largest commercial real estate development companies in California. And, you know, one of the, you know, top in the United States, a company called IDM corporation, and really ended up building millions of square feet of commercial office. And then, you know, several thousand units of apartments. Um, and then that from what, you know, Michael basically, you know, being the, the, uh, the, the pioneer entrepreneur, starting in 60 and then my dad got into the business in the late 60s and then I grew up around that so that you know sort of showed me what what being an entrepreneur was and really <clears throat> informed me of you know really what what not like I wasn't required to have real estate development as a career choice and by the way it's not a like common career choice it's not like you go to the library and read a book on hey you want to be a real estate developer here's what you do um, but being around them and watching them and what they did um, at least showed me what to do and gave me background on what to do or like what a real estate developer does, right? Um, and then later when I was you know 18 or 19 years old, I, I you know I'd do a lot of reading and always have and read you know several books, but they were sort of in that genre of you know how to how to invest in real estate and you know make a million bucks on the weekend kind of you know thing. And that those books showed me, what deal making was right? How to find an undervalued asset and improve it and sell it at a profit or, land, or real estate development really is the ultimate value add. Is what what I say is you find an empty piece of land, you build a building, you rent it, and then you've increased the value and either hold it at higher value or you sell it. Um, so you know the, the the background and the observation over my my early life you know taught me what it was to be a real estate developer. And then to me, it, you know, for a period of years, I didn't want to do that, right? Like as kids do, you, you go, oh, I don't want to do what my parents do. Um, but then I, after reading these books, I, you know, the light bulb went on. I was like, oh, okay, this is what they're doing, right? Like I didn't, you know, I didn't see the deal making necessarily as much as just, you know, saw what they did sort of day to day, although the deal making was inside of that for sure. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So when you started out,
0: did you start like a lot of people that maybe think when they go into real estate, it's like, oh, you have to become a real estate agent or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get your real estate license or did you just, uh, or did you just start, like start finding out how to sort of put these deals together, raising capital, uh, finding these properties? Like how, how did you, how did you sort of start in the, in, in the real estate business?
1: Yeah, so great question. So so for me, um, really once I decided at like eighteen years old that hey, I know what a real estate developer was, is I read these books about deal making, that sort of enlightened me on like what do you what do you have to know how to do, at least at some level, or at least that's what I you know, I thought I knew. And and uh, after high school, I, I worked in the construction trades for a couple of years while I was still sort of going through this process of figuring out like what my career choice is going to be. And that sort of showed me what not to do, right? I didn't want to do construction and and do that. Although, you know, it's a good business and certainly a lot of great people doing it, it just wasn't going to be the challenge that I was intending, you know, mental and, and knowledge challenge that I ultimately knew I wanted to. Um, and so I basically, because I've, I, at 18, like knew I wanted to be a real estate developer, I wanted to be a deal maker, for me, it was like I had to go get a college degree uh business degree, finance degree, and then that would lead into some professional you know career you know start starter kind of job and I specifically knew I wanted to work for other people because I knew like just very intuitively that although I had the background through my dad and my uncle and working on sites and reading books, like I knew there was all this knowledge to gain, right? Like I needed to learn. So I really, basically my, my path was to go work in the professional real estate development industry. Uh, And and I got a, I got a couple early jobs. I I worked for a guy named Mike Costa at a division of KB home, which is a big home builder in the U S Um, And I worked for the division of theirs that Mike ran that was an apartment development, you know, uh, division, syndicator and developer of new construction apartment buildings. And then I left there and and for a little while worked for another company that did market rate, um, you know, just pure like luxury rental housing. And I spent about five years, give or take, uh, just basically early career development, learning how to be a real estate developer. Really, my job title was project manager. And working for my Cost, I had the great luxury of Mike's philosophy about managing projects as a, as a PM was you, you ran it from beginning to end. Like a lot of people in real estate development or maybe home building, uh, you know, you go, Hey, you're a land act guy. Um, Hey, you're, you're a, you know, you're entitlement guy. Hey, you're the construction manager. Hey, you're the leasing person. And those career silos don't go together. Right. But Mike's philosophy was, "Hey, you find a deal, you get the land together, you do the approvals from you know the government approvals, the entitlements. You you know they had the capital, so that was sort of already existing. You gotta you gotta manage this thing all the way through to the end when it's leasing up, and then turn it over to the asset management folks. And I didn't know that at the time, but that was like the most amazing education I could ever have gotten because it really taught me." what a real estate developer does, right? Like I went through that life cycle of, a, of you know, many, many, many deals, ran numbers, you know, d- dissected numbers from other people's developments that we invested in, had to put them into our pro forma, had to look at their documents, had to review their deals. We also did our own deals because they invested in others. Plus we did our own deals. Um, and so like I got the crash course and then I'll, I'll add one last thing. Um, this is something for folks who are, you know, might think about getting into the real estate business. I worked with a guy at, at what was called KB major Coffin Bro multi-housing group and he's to West LA, which if anybody knows the Southern California market, it's like a really long commute, like minimally hour and a half each way. So we were in the car two, three, sometimes four hours a day and uh in fact uh, the guy's name is Mo Mohana and I and he and I still talk every once in a while and he was like dude you like you were killing me i i asked him every question you could imagine in the morning, I'd go, Hey, I worked on this thing yesterday. Hey, Mo, what do we do here? They'd go, Okay, do this, do that, talk to this guy, you know, hire this person, you know, say this, say that. And then I'd go to work, i do those things, you know, and learn some more. And then at the end of the day, I would go back and go, Okay, you told me to do this and that didn't work. And you go, oh, Okay, well, then do this other thing. And, you know, the most like just bet, like I didn't call it a mentorship then. But that's really what what it was. Now Moe's just a sort of guy that you know he's he's wants to get stuff done effectively, and you know like he loves doing it. Uh, he still does it now, and uh, was willing to answer all my million questions. So
0: that's awesome. That, that that's amazing. Uh, so I so I also want to ask you quickly. Uh, what so with the like in the real estate. Uh, so the real estate industry, there's a lot of different ways you can go. Uh, wh- what has been the most like profitable and the most fun for you? Like, is it like the development side? Is it like yeah. a value add? Like you buy a property that already exists and you know, you renovate it. Yeah. Um, or like, what what, what's sort of been the most profitable and the most fun for you to do?
1: So we've always been a real estate developer. Um, I used to years past, uh, like sort of mix that real estate investment and real estate development were like really you know, the same thing. And they are like two sides of the same coin in a way. I mean, they're both real estate projects that you acquire and value add and then, you know, increase the value, that kind of thing. Um, but real estate development really is its own gig. And, and the reason for that is basically one of the key differences between value add and real estate development is that you have the whole political process of planning commissions and city councils. And, you know, you get into these municipal politics. Um, political processes where if you do a value add deal, you just go buy it. Yeah. Maybe you got to get permits, but you're, you know, changing paint and carpet and doing landscape, but you're not doing structural changes or at least, you know, hopefully you're not and shouldn't be. (laughs) Um, You're not changing the configuration of the site. Um, So you really like have minimal involvement with the local government. Whereas, uh, whereas real estate development, I got to find a piece of ground, you know, an empty piece of land or underutilized, and i in many cases have to go to the you know local government and have them approve my project like oh you want to build you know 100 units of apartments on this site well you have to get our permission and you have to go through this political process of planning commission city council and the neighbors are going to have input and the planning staff will have input and that's really the biggest difference and that's also where a lot of risk is um, inherently exists for real estate development because that can go against you, right? Like you can go to planning commission and they go, lots of neighbors hate your project, Scott. So sorry, we're going to vote against you. And then, you know, planning or uh, city council might do the same thing, what we call discretionary approvals. Um, so, you know, that's the most challenging part of it. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I guess my, my, to answer your question, what's been most fun for me, most profitable? Um, most profitable has been when I found a piece of land and we've gotten those discretionary political approvals done. And then we just sold it to another person, another developer who just, they build it. So we didn't do anything except tie up the land and get the governmental approvals on it. You know, you might call it land development or an entitlement deal. And that's just like the most purely profitable thing I've ever done. Um, the funnest thing, the most challenging thing is what we're working on now, which is, uh, you know, we specialize in building a specific type of workforce, rental housing, we call urban townhouse or UTH. Um, and that's really been, been the most like enriching, valuable thing that I've gone through because we can produce market spirit yields to investors, which as a developer, that's our main main job is to produce profitable projects so we can get paid and make profit and also produce yield to our investors. But also UTH serves middle income working families, right? Like uh, gives them a natural, naturally occurring version of affordable housing. And that's been really great. Like I'm like from a social impact and from just like my own like ethics, my standards of conduct, I would much rather be doing that. Like, you know, helping those families and producing a yield that just, you know, purely working for the money. So I would say, you know, that would be sort of the, like my thinking most recently about what's been most fun and most challenging, you know, I mean, development's always complicated and it's always risky. So, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, you, you got to love it enough cause it's going to kick your ass like day in, day out. <laughs> um, but it's like, we can get these, you know, these, uh, you know, satisf- You know, personal satisfactions out of it, you know, producing yield and, and helping families.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that, that's, that, that, that's what it has always interested me about uh, real estate is that like, you know, you, you take, like you're saying, you take a piece of land and then you create something that actually helps the community or, you know, like sort of yeah. like, like something that wasn't there and now you add to the community and it gives housing and stuff for like, let's say if it's retail or commercial office or whatever it is, it sort of mm-hmm. gives something back to yeah. the community. And that's what I that's what I really love that's about right. real estate is like you you're, yeah. you're you're taking these pieces of land and changing it for the better uh, for the community and stuff.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, it's it, it's interesting that you say that because because I, I what I say about being a real estate developer is we're change agents, right? You know, you you like you described, you go into a neighborhood and there's an empty piece of land and you're going to build some project, whatever it is, you're like driving change in that, in that neighborhood, and that city, in that location. And that is producing value if you do it right. But also, you know, like the reality is, you know, uh, human beings around the project, most human beings don't like change, right? Like if you think about it really fundamentally, everybody likes stability and Hey, that's been an empty lot there for 30 years. I, I want it to stay that way. <laughs> right. And this is when we get neighbors coming in to complain about the project. So, Like we go into the process knowing that we're disrupting the human experience in and around the project. And, you know, in many cases, we'll find land that's already approved, right, has the correct zoning already. And so what that does, we're not indifferent to the neighbors around us. We just don't want to subject ourselves to the political risk of neighbors that are pissed off and energized because you're producing change right? Which is what we do. Like we always produce change. There's never a point where we don't like implement and drive change. Right. And so sometimes the choice of project sites is informed by the fact that you go, Oh, I don't want that political risk. So I'll just buy a site that's already zoned. This is one of the ways we make the UTH model like market superior yields is because we just don't do that political process in any big way. Like we do a little bit here and there. Um, But I would say nine out of 10 sites already have the zoning in place and we can go straight into plan check, um, you know, get our plans approved, permit ready and built. Like we don't have to go to the political process to ask for approval, at least we try to avoid it. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So
0: jumping now to like, let's say, um, somebody who's just like, you've already given a lot of like good pieces of content and, and you have an amazing story about, you know, your, with your real estate background, how you got into real estate. Uh, how would you recommend to somebody that's maybe, you know, uh, younger let's say in their 20s early 20s uh or you know 18 mm-hmm. years old and they hear this and they're like wow this is so cool like i, I want to do you know i want to do what scott's yeah. doing like this sounds amazing it's exciting you know i, I want to like take yeah. pieces of land. how what would you say for them to get into uh real estate how how like if you're 18 again how would you have done it
1: so I'll, I'll offer if uh everybody goes to my linkedin profile just look at for scott k choppin under linkedin and you'll you'll find me and look at the articles that we published on that on that LinkedIn profile and, you know, on my LinkedIn profile. And I wrote an article called Six Ways to Build Your Real Estate Development Career. And in there, I wrote exactly what you're asking about. So I'll just offer a couple of things. But, you know, go read the article. Um, it's, you know, it's probably our most widely read article that I've ever published. Right. You know, it's still getting comments like, you know, three or four years since I wrote it. But there's a couple things. So, you know, you, you know, there's no right or wrong path. Like earlier you said, Hey, did you get your real estate, you know, license and I happened to have gotten it, but I got it years after I was a real estate developer and, you know, lots of different career paths that could lead to being a real estate developer, you know, like legal, you know, attorneys, accountants, real estate agents, you know, construction people, architects right? Everybody who's sort of involved in the real estate development process observes what the real estate development marketplace can produce, right? In in profits and and yields. And so a lot of people after a while, they go, oh, I'm going to go do that. And I don't say any of those are, are good or bad. I'm just, what I'm after is, you know, they're all valid pathways. It's like, what's the most effective? What gets you there the soonest at the lowest cost and at the least risk and least mistakes, right? So a couple things. One, I I mentioned the mentorship before, one of the things about, you know, anybody who's young and I remember being a young, like, you know, you know, people who want to be real estate developers are like self-selected optimists, right? You can't be in this business and not be optimistic. Like you're going to figure out a way to get it done and I, you know, I can get it done and and that's an appropriate way. You got to have that like fundamentally. Uh, but you got to really acquire knowledge, right? That's the way to think of it. And being a real estate developer is different than being a real estate investor, like I talked about before, and a lot of different things about the real estate development business that are just not normal, well, they, that they find a mentor and work with that mentor. And that can be any numerous versions of mentorship. That could be you find a land deal right? And you go, I want to be a real estate developer. And then you go, I find another developer and I pair up with them in a joint venture. And part of the deal is you go, Hey, let's do this deal together. And I want you to teach me like, that's part of the deal that you would structure. Or you go to work for somebody like I described, you know, I worked with that guy Mo and, and, you know, he didn't, I didn't formalize a mentorship, but that's basically what he was if I look back at it. So you get a professional job in a real estate development company. And then you seek out knowledge from the people that you work with. Um, you know, you could have a just a normal mentorship, right? like, hey, I don't work for you, I'm not gonna do a deal with you, but you're in the business, and you know, either, you know, like I can trade some you know benefit back and forth that makes it worth the the, the mentors' time, you know. Uh sometimes people will pay other people to be their mentor. Hey, let me let me make it worth your while and uh and and teach me, but usually you just want to look for what can you trade that's a value, right? A land opportunity, time, maybe give time for free. My article says, Hey, go work, go get an internship and work for free for a year. Right. And you know, people go, Oh dude, Scott, really? I got to work for free for a year? Like that sucks. And I go, I know, (laughs) but you got to give some value to the person who's teaching you. Otherwise they're not going to do it. Like if you go, Hey dude, teach me, you go great. Uh I'm you know, I got a company to run or I got a you know, I got deals to execute on or whatever, capital to raise. And there's got to be some value trade, right? And 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 t- free time is is one of those things that you can offer earlier in your career. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a guy work with me, a guy named Mike Lanza, and he came on board really in sort of this internship role, and he he approached me and I said, Hey, here's the deal. Work on this project, I'll teach you. You'll work for free. We'll do it for a year and then we'll, we'll reassess at the end of the year. Well, when the year finished up, he basically, we didn't have a position. I always try to, when we take on interns to have a role for them to go into, if there's one like a actual paid position, it just happened to be when, when Mike was done with his year, Um, We didn't have a role. Of course, he was, you know, wanted to go make money. And I totally respected that we ended up he went went and did some other things. But he called me about three, maybe two months ago. And he said, Scott, I want you to know that the year I spent with you was way more valuable than I ever knew. Only did that value show up when he went to go, basically. He just got accepted in the uh, at USC's uh, uh, master degree of urban planning. He got accepted there, but he also got a full-time job working for a nonprofit affordable housing developer. And when we talked... And it was all good natured. I was like, hey, you know, how did the interview go? Like, did the stuff we worked on, did that help? And he's like, dude, I knew exactly what to say. I knew what they were after. I knew what a project, hey, take it from A to B to C to D, right? The life cycle of a project, working with the city, getting the permits, all those, you know, I mean, there's a million examples of those things that you learn. But that shows up for people in the real estate development business. So If you're the person hiring somebody, you're looking for somebody who knows those things because they're not normal. Like even if you were, like I get this, asked this question a lot, and this will be in the article that people see. They go, oh, hey, how about if I started a construction career? Yeah, so what I advise people who are thinking about a construction role to start their development career, I usually advise them not to do that because it doesn't teach you all the many things that you need to know as a real estate developer. Running performas, land acquisition, managing architects, you know, Construction teaches you construction, of course, but you need to know how to, you know, manage property managers and leasing process and asset management. And so I always advise people, you know, like, like do an internship or get a mentor or do a JB in order to immediately expose you to the real estate development domain. So you can start to get exposure to all those different aspects of development, right? Because the sooner you can see them all and manage them all and and have somebody teach you about all the different component parts, the sooner you're going to be up and operational with your knowledge to be able to skillfully, you know, execute on a project where construction will teach you how to build a building, which is great. Nothing wrong with that. But you're not intending to have a career building buildings. You want a career as being a real estate developer that, oh, by the way, manages somebody else who builds buildings, right? So it's like a sub, subsection of development and you don't want to build your career in that. The other thing and why I advise people is that when you go to interview for a real estate development role, when you say, oh, I worked in the construction field as a project manager or a, as a, you know, maybe in the field, real estate development people know what that is. And they also know if you've never done anything beyond that, that you're probably limited in your capacity to deal with the other characteristics. So you get pigeonholed. Right in a way, and I'm not like I'm not saying real estate developers go. Oh, construction people suck. It's not that. It's just it'd be the same as if you were an architect. Now it happens to be that architects are really involved in that front end political process. Like they deal with that a lot, and they design the buildings and go to planning commission, city councils. So even an architecture career has like a broader exposure to sections of real estate development knowledge base. Um, but I'm a like I'm a proponent of just. Just you got to get into the role, whatever way you can, as an intern, you know, mentee, JV, as a career. Um, you know, even if you went to work in the mailroom at a real estate development company, is probably going to be better than going into construction or or any other narrow field. Let's not pick on construction here, yeah. Because you ultimately want to get exposure to everything that a real estate developer does, which is a lot of broad, different things. You know, one day I might talk to the architect and designing the building and laying out a site plan. And the next call I make is to the city council person to help him raise money or him or her raise money. And Hey, how's your council race going? And you know, Hey, what are the other council people think? And then the next call, I'm raising equity. Yeah. next call, I'm talking to the construction lender. Next call, I'm talking to the property manager. Hey, how's our leasing of units going? Right. And because I've had exposure to all those and, you know, you know, and had, you know, mistakes, you know, in every, sector of that and learned how to do it and and also now i know to work with networks of people who know that stuff better than i do so right now you know and where i'm at my career arc it's as much about having knowledge and a good team you know vendors employees you know team team members that know how to do that better than i like i have this great civil engineering firm that we do a lot of work with i know a lot about civil engineering but i don't you know, other than managing the process efficiently and try to be creative in the problem solving to get over breakdowns, I don't need to know how to be a civil engineer. And in fact, I'll say, Hey, you know how to do that better than me. Go do it. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I know what I like. I know what the objective is. I know the direction we want to head. I know I want to keep costs down and maximize profits and, and expedite most quickly. Um, but beyond that, I don't do engineering, right, as an example. And that's true for any of the any of the domains that are involved in real estate development.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, 100%. And it's like, uh, it's related to other businesses, like you're pretty much for that one project is like, you're the CEO, right, of you're like, you're putting everything mm-hmm. together, you're bringing the right people in, uh, you're connecting the right people with the right people, uh, and sort that's of right. managing the whole thing. And sort of, you know, like, like you were saying, is like, you're talking with the city officials, and making sure they're all good with it, Right. Uh, then you have your, specialized, yep. you know, architectures and then you're raising capital and all this sort of stuff, but yeah, all people in and then you're managing it sort of, um, yeah. So like, I, I, I was trying to, I was trying to look for another word to describe it. I,
1: I have an example for you. Yeah. Let, let me share an example I used to, to answer what you're just talking about there. So everybody knows what the conductor of an orchestra is, right? It's the guy up front, guy or gal up front directing. But if you look at what that person's job is, usually they're going to select the music, you know they're required by the board to produce a great event or great music or great concert series. Um, they're they may be responsible for for bringing the team of of musicians together. And so the example I use is the conductor knows what the violinist should play and how it should sound and how it should fit with everything else and the the volume and the tone and but but they don't play the violin. Like if you said hey go play that violin they go I don't I don't but. I know exactly how it should sound and I want, I'm, I'm after a certain objective, right. And I mix it all together and I make sure it all happens and I manage it. So, you know, you sort of sit in an overview position of looking at everything, making sure it's all coordinated, that it's working well, that it produces a good, you know, event or concert or music piece at the end of the day. Um, The other example I use is movie production, right? Like a movie producer, you know, they find the script, they hire the actors, they hire the director, they raise the money or they put the money in themselves. And then they basically are responsible for marshalling the whole, you know, project through its cycle of development to the end, which is to basically produce a great movie, hopefully, and then launch it out in the public and hope that it's successful and makes a bunch of money.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I'm just saying that, that that's, uh, yeah. Y- you said that a lot, uh, uh, a lot better than what, what I would have said, but yeah, that, that's actually that, that, that's a great example with the orchestra. And like, like you're mm-hmm. saying, it's like, they know, like they, they, they're just bringing it all together. Right. They're yeah. not like, you know, they're not an, they're not an expert violinist or like an expert engineer and expert architect, but they yeah. know where to get, where to find one and mm-hmm. what they should, that, that architecture violinist should be doing. Right. That's right. That's so exactly whatever, right. Which is really interesting. So <clears throat> I, I sort of want to t- touch now on is like, um, what are some course, like when you're first getting into it, what are some core skills that you should be fo- uh, focus on learning? Uh, you know, is it like pro formas? Is it like yeah. networking? Uh, I, I know like this is like, you should be doing all of it. Uh, but, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but like at the beginning, it's like, what, what do you sort of see as bringing them like as a new person that maybe doesn't have much knowledge and mm. you're trying to get into the industry as fast as possible and like with most efficient. Yeah.
1: Uh, what- well, there, there's a few different answers, but I think I would probably start with like proforma, running proformas or financial modeling, right? If, if, you know, people aren't used to the word pro forma, but, you know, it's a proforma, you know, financial model where you plug in all the variables of the project, rents, costs, land costs, you know, time. All those things are put into this, you know, financial model, you know, usually an Excel model traditionally, Um, And then, you know, this model should tell you as like a result in some sort of yield or internal rate of return number, does this project work? Does it make sufficient profit to generate, you know, you know, acceptable profits to the developer and, you know, appropriate yields, market superior yields even to investors. And the reason I like ProForma is, is because really it the proforma is a model of the project both in the financial cash flow meaning money raised and washing through the project to build the building and then producing income when it's done right but that also models the time right so as a running proforma you ne- you need to know each life cycle okay so we go find land we tie it up then we acquire the land where we're getting governmental approvals and then we're building the project and we're leasing the project and we get the perm loan or we sell it. Right. And they literally go in that order. And so a pro a well-built pro forma has that life cycle built into it inherently, at least a good model does. Right. So like our model, we have a, a tab in our Excel sheet that shows the, you know, the rents and incomes and expenses, right. Like the money in money out on cash flow. Right. Then we got the construction period cash flow, like when we're building it, how does the money move through the project? And then we got lease up, you know, how quickly do we lease up and get the cash flow positive? And then we have a stabilized cash flow. These are each different tabs in the Excel. And the stabilize shows the performance of it operationally for the next, you know, 10 to 30 years, whatever the time period that you're going to hold it. Right. And so once you know the pro forma now there is a like there is the challenge of do you know do you learn the process first and then see it in the model the pro forma or do you learn the pro forma and then start to look for it you know in the in the cycle of the you know process of development usually I say you do both at the same time right but the example I use is I think of development framework as like a patchwork of knowledge modules right and each time you're working on a project, you're going to learn about this, you learn about that, you learn about that. And so eventually you're going to have touched all this, the parts of the cycle of a real estate development project and learn as much as you can. But in a way, the pro forma overlays all that, right? In, in representation and in cash flow and time, right? And this, and the parts of the project. So if you can learn the pro forma and really, you know, uh, my uncle Mike used to say this, you know, that, uh. You know, the finance, the financing, the capital, the capital flows and the projections and a pro forma, that's really the heart of the deal, right? Like if you don't have that, you know, appropriately, you know, if you can't raise capital, you can't do the deal. I can can be the greatest developer on earth. If I can't raise money from investors, if I can't show a model that produces a return and pick up the right project to produce the return and execute it effectively to, to generate the returns then you know but uh, none of those matter if i don't have the capital to actually do those things like i could be the greatest execution project manager on earth if i don't have capital then the deal doesn't go like so that's the heart of the deals so you know when you learn about the financial structure the capital stack the pro forma modeling and how money cash flow and time work in the deal i think that's a <clears throat> that's one of the first things to learn um but you know i i would say probably every Other people might go, no, don't learn that first. Learn this other thing. So I think this is just an interpretation. Um, But I like the, like anything that can demonstrate to me, like all the parts of a project. And although the pro forma doesn't show you the political process, it has the political process time in it. And you go, oh, okay, this comes, you get the land, then you do the governmental approvals, then you build it, right? It always goes in between those two, right? And a pro forma will show that to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I understand. And I agree with you is, uh, with that is that, yeah, yeah, that, that should be, um, and I've heard it from different investors, uh, that, that should be one of the things you try prior to prioritize first is learning, uh, the financials and really understanding the financials of how, like, cause that's the heart of the business, right? Is understanding yeah. where's money, how is money coming in? You know, how is money going out all understanding the, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and a great guy who, uh, sort of like that, that's how he started got into real estate was like, he's, he's 25. And I don't know if you heard of him. His name's uh, David uh, Chupin. Mm-mm. You never heard of him? Okay. So, uh, no. yeah, awesome. so he, he's, I, he, I believe he lives in Texas, uh, but he's a young guy. He's 25 years old. Um, he started real estate when he was 19. Like, uh, you know, he bought two, well, he raised money, syndicated two 12 unit deals when he was 19 years old, uh, which Mm -hmm. is pretty crazy. But what he did was he learned financials and he built a financial model for himself. Uh, And he he understood that first. And then once you understand that, you can then bring that to, you know, investors and other people and say, Hey, this is the return we're going to be offering you like
1: you were saying. So so let me, that's, that's actually a great point. Um, And this is the, this is a commonality between real estate investment in any income producing properties and real estate development. The pro forma will demonstrate both or either, right? And so one of the things, like I advised a guy who was, you know, he was like helping us with some like internet marketing, digital content production. And the trade I made with him was his time for my knowledge, you know, about learning about real estate. And so we spent a few months working together that way. And basically what I advised him, and this sort of fits with this 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 example you're given. I said, hey, I'm going to explain to you generally how a deal works. Like you collect rent, you pay operating expenses that produces NOI, right? Then the NOI is used to value the property and then you want to buy it for less than that value, fix it up and increase the value. That'd be a typical value add move, right? I said, go out and look at a hundred deals. Don't plan on buying any of them. I just want you to go through an underwriting process on every deal. Talk to the broker, get the rents, and then I said, "Do that, and, and while you're doing that, build yourself your own pro forma. Really basic, you know, rents in, operating expenses, NOI, little cash flow, right? Like assumptions page. Here's my cost to land. Here's my cost to improve it. Right? You could be, you could probably do it on one Excel tab, if you if you were really efficient about it. And by doing that, you have to dissect." the deal enough to be able to represent it appropriately in a any pro forma right so i described the pro forma early as like somebody would have a model and they would learn the model but somebody else built the model right like that's how when i went in and worked for my costa he already had a model an amazing model pro forma and so i learned that but at the same time you know like you described sort of coming up from the like the street level is you know the 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 formulas for income producing properties and how to value them and how to underwrite them for yield is not that hard. It's not really when you look at it fundamentally. So you said the guy's name was David. Yeah. David. So David, you know, learned that and he probably talked to brokers and he probably talked to appraisers and bankers and you know, built the model and people looked at it and go, Oh, that didn't work. You know, you gotta fix this, fix that. Maybe he had a mentor, right? Like you know the back. We don't know the backstory, or maybe you do. I don't. Um, of you know being able to, because you know most people don't know how to. You know most people aren't even thinking about multifamily at nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something in something in his background, and good for him, right? Um, that gave him, hey, have you ever thought about multifamily? You know, get in early, and particularly when you're nineteen, dude, you have no overhead, you have no, you know, minimal living cost. Like you can, you got your, you can trade your time. You know, a lot of people will help you because if you are asking the right questions, hey, I'm David, I'm 19. I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, I want to be in the multifamily business. You know, hey, would you teach me how to do this thing? Right. Um, you know, that's that's super valuable and you have maximum flexibility. So I'd always encourage, you know, that's a different way to do it. I did it the professional, you know, college degree, career development. Um, cause I, you know, I knew I wanted to go straight into real estate development. I didn't, had no interest in being an investor or flipping homes. Although that wasn't even a thing that people thought about when I was, you know, when I was 18 or 19 and, and, and when I finished college and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, nothing right or wrong with that. It's different. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can, you could, in your example, you could probably, if somebody was really efficient in their learning and they dedicated all their time to it. You could probably be relatively effective in the investment, you know, build up pro forma, underwrite deals, no good deals and raise capital within a couple of years, maybe faster. I mean, if somebody was really, really after it and and had the right mentality about getting, building your network of people that you can, that can teach you and you can produce value for them in return, there is no limit to the amplification and velocity that you can produce in that. In fact, 99.9% of people, including myself when I was young, you waste your time by like fucking around with, you know, different things when if you were really focused on it. But the thing is, most 19 year olds, including myself, like you're not like dialed in that well. And and I, I feel fortunate that I, at 19 I was dialed in. I'm going to be a real estate developer and I'm going to go to college and do career path and then work for myself eventually. Um, that's just one interpretation of it. Um, but you know, you don't need a college degree to be a real estate investor or developer, which, you know, David's example, you know, clearly demonstrates. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, uh, like I'm,
0: I'm 20 years old and I can speak from sort of my, my point of view is that like, um, I'm interested in real estate and I want to go down the development route, but at the same time, it's like, I'm, I'm like, you're saying is I like I'm messing around, like. Uh, like, cause I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, at my point is like, what, like, what, what do I really enjoy doing? Like what, like mm-hmm. sort of like, and, and I want to explore everything, uh, yeah. that like different options and stuff, like to see like, Oh, am I interested in this? Am I interested in that? Right. Um, yeah. but I mean like the, the majority of my friends, it's like, uh, I'll, I'll talk to them and it's, uh, it's like, yeah, it's like, to be honest, like the majority of people at 18 to 20 to 22 years old don't really know what they want to do. And that's completely fine. Cause it's like, you know, you yeah. like, to be honest, you've only been like really being at out like, like just got to adulthood and started experiencing what the real world is like and what real like jobs are for like a couple of
1: years or, you know, you know, handful of years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I will say, you know, differentiating between when I was that age and now, I mean, the, 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 the knowledge base that's available for free via YouTube and podcasts and, you know, blogs or whatever sources you might find, is phenomenal. I mean, I tell my kids this all the time, you know, they're like, Hey dad, how do I do this? I go, well, go Google it or go find on YouTube. Uh, the other day, somebody was asking me, Hey, I need to, I don't even remember. It was like some marketing move, very obscure request. And in a a domain, I didn't know anything about. And I go, I don't know about that. But I told the guy, I bet you, if you search it on YouTube, somebody's made a video about how to do this marketing in this domain. And I went and did it. I I did the search and holy cow, it came up, right? Like dead on that really super narrow, tiny little thing that you would just never even think of. Um, I, I will say this though. In fact, I'm working on this. Um, the, the YouTube space for real estate development is actually relatively weak, I would say. I mean, it's probably getting better as time goes on. Um, but I actually, I'm, I've worked on on a couple of series of videos. In fact, if people go to our YouTube channel, um And look for uh, something entitled, like it's a playlist called the Life Cycle of a California Multifamily Deal. And what I did is I made 13 videos that demonstrated the, the construction cycle of one of our apartment projects. Like from dirt to complete. And every little, hey, here's framing, here's plumbing, here's electrical, here's this, here's that. Right? And I went and toured around the, the project and sort of narrated it as I walked around. With the idea of having people, you could watch that. And by the time you get to the last one, you will know relatively well how at least a stick frame residential building goes together. And then um, I'm actually working on uh, a book that basically would do the same thing that it would take you sort of step by step, you know, um, you know, like component by component of each, you know, hey, check the zoning. Hey, here's how to find land. Hey, here's how to work with an architect. Hey, here's how to work with a lawyer. Hey, here's how to underwrite a deal, right? Um, uh, people want to go to the LinkedIn profile. I've actually written several articles just on how to underwrite apartment deals, like two or three article series, uh, you know, in, in money in, money out, NOI, valuation. I did it in like narrative format. Um, and, and I just offer those things that I've that I produced myself. I mean, clearly there's tons out there. Uh, but I was really specifically after trying to be a resource of knowledge in the space of real estate development from the standpoint, that's why I wrote the article, you know, six ways to build your real estate development career. Cause I started thinking about like, what would I do? How would I do it? It's different. Um, You know, I didn't go into, Hey, look at YouTube. um, But certainly that's, you know, plenty, you know, plenty of information, plenty of knowledge out there to really move very, very fast. Like the velocity of learning right now is insanely high. I mean, and, 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 and good, you know, that's, that's the environment we all want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And with that, like that, that like you're doing two amazing things right there. One is like you were saying is you're like, you're placing yourself as the, you know, the real estate developer as like the expert real estate developer on social media. Like you are the guy like, and that's going to build brand and people are more people are going to know about Mm -hmm. you and like say, uh, like that's right. It's, yeah. it's hundred percent. And then, you, you know, there's somebody that's working in a different firm that like private equity or something and sees like, you know, maybe sees their video gets recommended mm-hmm. your video and they see you and they're like, Oh, this guy's doing actually some pretty right. cool stuff in California. Maybe we want to put some, you know, some capital tour, like towards this guy or something. Yeah. And the, and the second exactly thing right. is like, you're giving yeah. back to the community, which like, um, which people love, like you, you look at, um, like one of the best examples, I don't know if you heard of a, uh, called Gary Vee.
1: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge follower of his. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that, that guy, like he's absolutely phenomenal and he just gives back
1: to the society, like gives back to society and people love him. Well, his whole philosophy is value first, right? Like, you know, jab, 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 right hook, you know, value, value, value. And then every once in a while you're going to, you know, you'll give the right hook to sell. Right. But it's value production first. In fact, my entire digital content platform, which is, you know, all these videos and, you know, website and blog posts and email blasts and social media is all directly comes out of that. I mean, I was doing that before I was a follower of Gary Vee. But when I really started looking at what he was doing, you listen to his videos and he's like, you, you produce value. And and the, and the sales or the transactions will come. I mean, Tim Ferriss is another, like, you know, good demonstration of that. You know, he's got, you know, he, his podcast is huge. And every once in a while, he'll go, hey, I'm releasing a book. Everybody check it out. You know, I've, I've, you know, he even says, hey, I've produced a, a lot of value for you guys. Hey, go check this book out for me. And I mean, he's, you know, he's like in a good mood about it. And then, you know, and then he sells millions of books. <laughs> right now, he was... Selling millions of books probably before the podcast. But I think in this environment of, you know, value production first, you know, transmission of knowledge, transmission of help, right? You know, adding value to people's process. That's so important. In fact, that's really a fundamental, you know, tenet of like my own like personal and company ethics and ethics being standards of conduct is hey be be a producer value first and then the transactions will come. Now you do, you do have to ask for them, right? You still have to be in a sales conversation. Hey, I've done all these great things for you. Hey, here's what I need now, right? Hey, help me back. I need this, you know, I need this help. Pay me or hire me or whatever, right? Whatever it would be. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. That, that, that's
0: exactly true. Uh, I, I sort of want to jump now to because uh, I, I know we only got like a couple more minutes and stuff. Uh, is uh, going like, how is like with, uh, we haven't touched on it yet, but how has COVID affected, uh, the real estate market from what you've seen, uh, for development and things like that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, like, like, cause like nobody's dealt with, you know, probably in your lifetime or other people's life, like the majority of our lifetime, we haven't dealt with a pandemic on this scale before. So how, how has this affected the yeah. real estate market and development market?
1: Well, you know, so there's a, so I'll answer a couple of different ways, just sort of like general assessments of what I, what, like what I'm reading. I mean, we. I, I probably read you know I probably subscribe via email to every major uh multifamily market report that exists in the marketplace at least I you know all that I can find and and you know hunt for so you know multifamily is being affected you know and in in a few different ways but I'll sort of put in a couple buckets one is you know obviously employment is in the retail and service economy is badly affected right from these lockdowns And that's impacting those people who would be employed in those situations or those companies and how they rent. Now, obviously a lot, most places have eviction moratoriums. You know, we're based in California. We have, you know, some of the most, you know, radical eviction moratoriums that exist. So that sort of protects people for the time being, but we're seeing a couple of things happen in that multifamily domain as a function of coronavirus. One is in the brand new, a product, right? Like just finished brand new construction, luxury, mid or high rise, Um, We're seeing that those are generally going to be studio and one bedroom units, predominantly maybe a little bit of two bedroom and and markets outside of, you know, urbanized areas. Uh, But we're really seeing, you know, velocities of leasing and the rents associated with those new units to be impacted probably most out of everything that we've seen. Right. Those are just finished the building brand new rentals usually those guys are going to try to get the highest rents in the marketplace because they're brand new and the best product and, you know, best design and all that kind of stuff. Um, So, you know, the stats are different depending on who you talk to, but, you know, we're probably looking four to 6% decline in rents um, in the time being. Um, So, so the A products being affected, of course, because they're delivering brand new, right. And highest rents. And importantly, because they're studio and one bedroom units, they're impacted by the single earner households most, right? Like if you live in a studio, you're probably younger. You probably have your new job. Maybe you live with a, you know, husband or wife or a girlfriend or boyfriend, but you're not living at, you know, three or four or five people. And you usually have, will have one income. Maybe you live by yourself. Well, as soon as that person's employment situation changes, they can no longer sustain the rent in that unit at least viably. And so they're usually going to move out and maybe they move home or they move in with roommates. Right. And uh, so then there's that a product. And then usually what people do is in a recession environment, they'll start to move down. Right. Maybe they get a roommate situation then they move into a little bit of an older building. What, you know, B, B product, right. Not brand new, but still really nice. And then, you know, then you got C product where people might, you know, even move in there if they have to really, downsizing their incomes, right? They would go there, but this B and C and really C predominantly is where that working class tenant is the person employed at the restaurant or the retail. So there's some arguments that like C products going to get hurt, um, you know, as much, if not more than a product, because this is where the population that works in the service economy that's laid off or businesses close is happening where the A product is the higher income earners. Now, I think we'll probably see both those depending on the market that you look at right now, at least statistically those that a products having the most rent decline. Right. And, and in California, we need to be careful because it's a rent decline, but that's from like growing at 5% a year, going down to 3% a year, 2% a year. It's still growing. It's still positive, but it's like the rate of changes fall in, even if it's still positive growth. Now we may see, like second, third order effects where the where the rents actually will go negative, right? Like they'll start to drop from what they were last year versus slowing down in growth, right? Um, our our product, the UTH model, sort of fits in between the the new A, a and the old B and C. We're a new product A, like style building, but we locate in working class neighborhoods, so call it a B and C neighborhood. And most specifically, we build a five bedroom, four bath townhouse rental product. So we're where people move when they move out of the studio, like they'll get roommates and they'll move into our unit because they can cost share amongst more roommates or, you know, adult child moves home with parents and they start to share incomes and expenses across the family group or in-laws move in or grandparents move in or, you know, aunt and uncle, right. They combine together and then move into our five bedroom unit. So we're, we're completely contrary to this marketplace right now meaning we're accelerating in this downturn because we're the place where people go. Right. So I think that's sort of generally what we're seeing in the marketplace. And I do think, you know, we're, we're in obviously highly disrupted and unusual, like it, no one's ever had an eviction moratorium. That's like, who knows now it's going to start back up where evictions will start back up. So people are anticipating huge vacancy in all apartment sectors um, But but again, it depends on the market. Um, I, I think you know everybody was uh, ever. There's something called the rent tracker that the National Multi Housing Council does, where they track a portfolio of you know you know some millions of units, and the rent payment. You know how are these people paying? Are they paying on time? How much are they paying? Are they late? Do they not pay? And it's been tracking around you know like one or two basis points below what it performed at it last year, and it has not fallen off the cliff yet. People keep saying, "Oh, in May it's going to fall off. Oh, in July, the you know the stimulus, the federal stimulus and employment money's falling off. Then you know, August we're going to hit the wall. Nope, hasn't happened, hasn't happened even through September. We're, st- we're below 2019, so we're not like in- you know increasing. Um, But I have stories of people that I know that are collecting, you know, 99% rents. And part of the logic is like, look, people know that they have to have shelter, right? It's a fundamental biological need for humans. Maybe they need to arrange the format to be more cost effective. Like, you know, moving into our units would be one of those. Or, you know, hey, I share a bedroom with a roommate or I move home with parents or whatever, right? Like there's different versions of that. Um, But the reality is in a recession, people do it act economically defensively, right? But they still live somewhere. They're not moving nowhere. I mean, maybe some people become homeless and that would be unfortunate. Um, but the vast majority of people are going to reconfigure, but they're still going to live somewhere. And so the, the task then for the developer or the owner of assets is, are you an asset owner that is recession prone asset? Or are you an asset owner that's recession resilient? That's a differentiation we're making right now. That's a new differentiation for us, a new narrative where we're saying, Hey, we want to, we are, and, and are going to work to be more recession resilient, which is in a recession, people move into our units and actually amplify and, and add velocity to our business plan, which isn't typical by the way, like this is totally contrarian and uncommon, but we designed the workforce housing to in fact be that way. And that was sort of one of our original tenets of the business plan.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that That's very interesting. And with that, like w- with your company, uh, cause like, you know, there's some people, there's some companies that specialize, you know, in, you know, a class apartment, like condos, apartment buildings, right. That's what the majority they build in, uh, you know, in, um, you know, in large uh, cities and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so have have you been like uh, sort of positioning yourselves as like, you know, you, you have a portfolio of like the work work housing and then you also have a portfolio of let's say like maybe uh better you know like higher end asset classes at all or are you just uh
1: focusing primarily on totally on the workforce housing space to be to just give you a real you know direct answer we uh in 2016 basically divested ourselves of all the uh assets that we had developed up to that time period except two we kept which were affordable housing projects, so really true, truly low-income housing. Um, but everything else that was market rate, just luxury A product, we built a 453-unit deal that we JV'd with Lennar in Denver in a, in a city called Westminster in the Denver metro area. You know, we sold that in 2016, right? Because we just said, like, we're – like, you know, you could see – in 2016 that there was a wave of new product coming online a lot of like the pipeline was getting full uh, like in denver at the time when we sold there was like 25,000 units in the pipeline right and and markets like denver and you see this in texas where when the market gets good the development industry expands rapidly and a lot of units a lot of supply right that doesn't happen so much in california but it was at that time that we made the the, the determination that we didn't want to compete in that mainstream marketplace with all these big giant companies like Trommel Crow, who just were going to, you know, they can do a lot of big, huge projects, low cost capital. We've always been a contrarian niche player. Like that's been our sort of our ethic. And so because of our background, my background in affordable housing, when I worked for my Costa, you know, I knew, you know, middle income families were, were underserved and also, you know, undersupplied, right? Like there just wasn't a lot of competition in that space. So we, divested ourselves of every project in 2016 and by 2017 we were fully committed to the UTH model solely and still are now and in fact because of this recession resilience i described we're actually expanding our business plan more rapidly in october of 2020 than we were in january of 2020 and that's for various reasons but let's just say land costs have dropped you know land assets that weren't for sale are now for sale um, construction costs, you know, labor's become a little bit more cost efficient. All the materials is a question mark. But most importantly is we have a robust leasing effort. So we're, we're leasing projects, you know, we're doing four to six a month in, in our projects, which is a great because in new product for most of our competition, it's zero, right? So four to six months while we're not breaking any records, we're leasing units successfully. And more importantly, we're right now $250 to $500 a month above our pro forma on our lease rates, which in a market that's got rents that are declining. So these are signals that we're observing that we need to be cautious and, and, and diligent, and vigilant is the, the terminology you use. Like, hey, let's not get too deep into any particular project or business plan or city or location geographically. Um, but and let's see how projects perform. Let's make mitigated bets, right? Like not huge projects. Maybe we do mid-sized projects to be a little bit more nimble, right? We stay close to home. And so far, those bets have all turned out to be to be good bets. And you know, we're actually now working on a whole pipeline of projects that will deliver sometime, you know, late 2021, you know, in 2022 and beyond when we're like saying, Hey, that's giving time for the market to go through whatever disruption it's going to go through. And we know it's going to be significant. And then let's get, you know, one or two years in between now and, and when we deliver uh, leasing, although we're still comfortable leasing now, like we're leasing units successfully, like I talked about. So, you know, that that's, you know, I, I'm speaking as if that's all sort of obvious and it's not, Right We had to see the market developing and oversupply becoming an issue, although that's a standard thing that happens in for the development marketplace. We didn't want to compete where everybody else was competing. We wanted to be an uncommon offer. We wanted to be an undersupplied market for families that were like you know had had need for this housing and, and deliver it to them attainably. Right for their pricing that they would pay for rent, so this is a design of strategy that I've been working on for like four, three and a half, four years. So you're getting today the culmination of all that thinking, and you know, and that's part of like when people work with me or JV with me or however they work with me, and I and i like I you know I'm sort of working with them to to convey knowledge and do deals. Part of it is to to be looking at innovation. Right. Don't get stuck in the same model that every other developer's done. I don't want to be doing studio in one bedrooms right now, not because serving those, you know, tenant uh, profiles that like those units is a bad thing. It's a fine thing. And there's lots of people that are in their life cycle that a studio is appropriate. I just say I want the confidence level of success of renting to a family that can pay, like has multiple earners and is looking for that unit to make their life better. Like when we find that family they're like, wow, I didn't even know this thing existed and your rent is this. And I can share it with four income earners of my family. And I can have grandma in the ground floor bedroom bathroom and kids can come home and everybody's got their, it's, it's amazing, right? Like people don't even know this like exists, you know, the uh, five bedroom rental unit specifically what I mean.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and that's like those, uh, yeah, there were so many good points in that with the, with, with what you guys are doing is like, you know, sort of going back to like what I was saying is like, you're adding something to, uh, the community, which is going to really, really benefit the community. Um, yeah and, and also with like, you know, like people, like, like you're saying is people that not, they don't know about this, but by, you know, with you working on social media and doing more social media, more people are going to know about this. Mm-hmm. Right. So somebody that maybe yeah. watches your social That's right you know, some, you know, maybe some 20 year old that watches their social, your social media and is, you know, in a, you know, like with their family, they could actually be somebody that moves into it. Right. So it's like, yeah, that's right. I've had
1: that a lot. People, people are like, dude, I, this is how my family lives. They, they like those people, they totally get it. They're like, I get this like amazing, you know, and I'm not looking for the kudos, but it's good to know that and in fact, I tell people, I, like, you know, I had an investor one time ask me, he goes, like, how do you find these families? And you put, you know, this part of the family together and that part of the family or two separate families. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. These families already live this way, multi-generationally. We're just giving them a unit that's coherent with their lifestyle when no one ever did. Right. Nobody in the development marketplace. I mean, very, very small examples spread, you know, here and there of people doing you know like townhouse rental and build the rent is becoming a growth part of the business. But in California to deliver large family housing that is also attainable, that's really the unique part of our offer. And that we use private capital, we pair that with private capital. Um, but it's like when we again when we hit that demographic, they're like instantaneously they get it. And and part of it's that they just never had the opportunity to necessarily have that kind of a space. Um, And, you know, in coronavirus, right, like having work from home space and, you know, uh, you know, I hope, you know, we don't have any more lockdowns. I'm not a fan of lockdowns in any way, shape or form, but I think people are working from home, you know, home has become a refuge in the way that they didn't necessarily think of it before. And so having a 17 or 1800 square foot townhouse with five bedrooms and a, a two car garage and your front door that has no common hallway, like that's become a, a competitive advantage in this marketplace. I mean, that won't yeah. last forever. Eventually coronavirus will, you know, sort of, you know, like disappear into the background. Um, yeah. That, you know, these are things that people think about now for sure. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. I, I, I like
0: to, to agree with you on that point is like um, I'm in the Ottawa market and the auto market, like the housing market is doing really well. Um, and it's blowing up and it's like in, yeah. uh, like I, I was over at my friend's, uh, like, uh, I was over at my friend's place and, um, pretty much like literally I, I was talking, I was talking to his dad and the, there was, there was houses that had sold around like sort of where they lived and the prices they were getting for the houses were like ridiculous. Like if you asked yeah. like a year or two ago, uh, you know, like, Oh, what, what was like, you know, what do you think the value of this property? You would been like, you know, maybe like six hundred seven hundred thousand $700,000. Now they're selling for you know, eight to 900 to almost a million yeah. dollars in the, in Isn't the, amazing. And, and you're like, yeah. and, and you're just like, what, what's happening? And he was saying, he says like, well, a lot of people are looking like they're moving out of, like, they're not like, not loads of people are moving out of the city, but people are moving out of the city because of COVID and they yeah. want to, they want somewhere where it's like, you know, suburbs where there's more land. There's, you know, you're not, yeah. like well, yeah. you're and going into a hallway or something.
1: Yeah, that, and that's a trend we've been tracking. So all, all that you just said is exactly the same. We're seeing, you know, the for sale market in those called second, third, third tier cities away from the city center. Maybe you call it suburban, maybe you call it bedroom communities. Um, those are blowing up. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's happening. And I think in probably every major urban metro. And, you know, people are in a story that, oh, cities are going to die everybody's going to move rural and suburban and cities are dead. And uh, I don't, you know, I study, study and follow, you know, a lot of people who have the opinion that like, look, cities are where the infrastructure is, where the jobs are. And yes, the it's going to be affected right now in the short term while people are like, literally I got to get out of New York city because I don't want to be there or LA or wherever, San Francisco. Um, but the reality is, you know, the concentration of, people and, and human knowledge and networks right like I, hey I can do business with that person or that person and then my jobs there is you know is gonna you know that will return or will or at least society will return back to seeing those things of value. And I think also gives chances for the city to you know in California we need to correct our housing production you know methodology because we're doing like a terrible job at delivering enough housing for our population. I mean this is part of the reason we're doing, the UTH model is because these families, they don't have this housing available to them. I mean, when we deliver it, they do, but generally California sucks at producing housing. I mean, we're probably the worst housing production marketplace in the United States. And that's, and, and guess what, it reflects in our pricing. Like we have yeah. the house, highest housing costs in the United States also, yeah. those, those, lo- those logic, you know, that math works together. There's a reason yeah, one yeah. leads to the other hundred uh, percent. Uh, I,
0: I know we're coming, we're coming to the end here, but yes, yeah, so thank you again, Scott, for coming on the show and you know, it's great to be here. Yeah. Like uh, giving all the value that you've given has been amazing. I highly recommend guys that you go check out his LinkedIn, uh, Scott Chopin, uh, and you go check out the, I believe it was the six, uh, six ways to get into development. If you're interested in real mm-hmm. estate, a hundred percent uh, you know, lots and lots of good information. Um, and also, uh, where can people find out more about, you know, your YouTube, LinkedIn, or other places that they can find out. About yeah. So,
1: yeah, I appreciate that. So a couple things, you know, for you guys, what I'll do is if people send me an email, uh, it's chop and C H O P P I N at urban Pacific. Um, uh, tell me, you know, saw us here, saw it on your, on your podcast. And then, uh, uh, we'll send you an ebook, Um, and that's basically how to survive and thrive in a recession, which I think is a good subject matter today. So I make that offer for your listeners. Uh, if people want to go to our website, www.urbanpacific.com, uh, go to the investor education section. There's a ton of videos, articles, you know, it's like the database of all these things you go to LinkedIn if you want, but the, 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 the investor education section has like the totality, the collection of it. Um, so I'd encourage people to go there if you go on the website, there's a red button hit that and that'll sign you up on our, our Saturday email list and we're putting out every Saturday multiple articles, you know, market updates market trends, you know, things we're observing. So a lot of the stuff that we talked about today, you know, we share that in you know, the articles, you know, the source material that we're finding, uh, you know, we do this research anyways, we're just sharing it with people on Saturday mornings, you know, to, to help them learn also.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And guys, yeah. If like, if you made it all the way to the end here, yeah, go a hundred percent, go check out what uh, Scott's doing. Uh, you know, you know, for, for myself is like, if, if you guys can go over to Apple podcast and, you know, like, and leave a review of the podcast that helps out a lot. Uh, and again, thank you, Scott, for coming on the show.
1: Great to be here. Appreciate the invite.